We are going to be looking at Psalm 63 this morning in Sunday school. We have today, and then I think we have one more week next week in our series in the Psalms, and then we'll actually have a couple of one-off times in Sunday school prior to the whole shift of the schedule for the stairwell project getting underway. And so just be watching for updates about that. But this morning we're in Psalm 63, which if you remember when we started the series and Pastor Myrell kind of broke down some of the, the categories of psalms and, and things like that, <clears throat> this, this psalm is, it's a pseudo, okay? It's a pseudo lament. It's a, it's a pseudo praise. It's a pseudo royal psalm. And so it's got a bunch of elements of, of a variety of um, emphases and characteristics that really make it difficult to categorize specifically. But even as we said in the beginning, sometimes people get really wrapped up in what category does this fall under? And really, the whole point of those is just to help you understand what is the psalm oriented towards and what is it bent towards. And so this morning in Psalm 63, we'll let it speak for itself uh, in a large part. Um, Psalm 63 has a heading that says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. In the wilderness of Judah. What? If you're like me, you don't really know what a wilderness is like. I thought western Kansas was a wilderness when I moved out here from southern California. And then I realized, no, it's not. That's not. So I, I, don't, I've, I don't know. I've never lived in a wilderness. I've never been in a wilderness. But um, he uses this description of wilderness in the psalm. And so it's important that we just get a little bit of an image. This is, this is the type of area that is the wilderness. All right. So you can see it's very wildernessy. There's not much vegetation. It's barren. It looks pretty desolate. It's not lush. It's not fruitful. You know, it's, it's, it's and then this is a, um, this is another area, uh, again, of that type of landscape that is the context in which David writes what we're going to, what we're going to read and consider together. Okay, so it's important that you keep these, those images in your mind. Because as he's writing this, when it says when he's in the wilderness of Judah, there's two options really for probably when this psalm was written. One, when David was running from Saul, okay, so he had been anointed as king, but he hadn't taken over the kingship yet, and so Saul was bitter and vengeful and trying to go after him, and so Saul was chasing him, and this is the wilderness that he would have hidden out at that point, or this is the wilderness that he would have hidden out later, actually later in his kingship when, if you remember, Absalom, his own son, revolted against him uh, and, and, and really garnered enough support to drive David out of Jerusalem and into the wilderness. And so uh, one of the commentators, Alan Ross, notes regarding that particular story as David is fleeing Jerusalem from his son. 
It says the wording of 2 Kings 15 verse 25 is interesting in this connection. Here's what he says in 2 Kings. It says, and the king, David, said to Zadok, who was trying to carry the ark out of Jerusalem with David, he said to Zadok, carry back the ark of God into the city. If I shall find favor in the sight of the Lord, he will bring me again and show me both it and his habitation. And then Alan Ross notes in 2 Samuel 16, 2 to 14, and in 17, 16, David is seen in the wilderness. And in 16, 14, we read how David and his men became weary, and the psalm says the land was weary, and they came to a place to refresh themselves. And so this is probably more the background of the psalm, uh, but the connection is not certain. It could have come from another time and another place. But no matter what, as we read the psalm and as we study the psalm, it's important to keep that in mind and the fact that while David is writing this, he's in that kind of an environment and he's running for his life. He's being pursued unto death in a wilderness like that. He's being persecuted by those who should love him. He's struggling to care for those who are under his charge. He's feeling the lack of resources and nourishment that we consider so basic to life. And he pens Psalm 63. And this psalm is going to help us learn four sustaining truths for difficult times. The first is this, God is your greatest need. I want to pause and go to the Lord before we actually start reading the text here. So pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for what we can learn from your word, for what we can learn from the saints of the past as they went through life in faith. It is so instructive to us when we, you tell us that that's even why these things were written, were for our instruction so that we can, Lord, learn of your grace, of your work, of your character in the past so that it will bear us up in the present and the future and bring glory to your name. So help us now to, to learn well and to be able to apply in the days and weeks ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So four sustaining truths for difficult times here in Psalm 63. The first being this, God is your greatest need. Any other need you think you might have, put it up against God and it's going to fall short in an ultimate comparison. We're going to read the first couple of verses here to see this. It says, O oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. This first five, uh, six words, oh God, you are my God. It's really easy. I did this. It's really easy to read it and move on. But stop. Think about that. Here, here the personal, the intimate, the relationship that's laden in those words. One commentator, Derek Kidner, writes, the simplicity and boldness of, and it's a different version, but he says, thou art my God, is the secret of all that follows. Since this relationship is the heart of the covenant from the patriarchs to the present day, and its implications are 
endless. If you were in first service and you heard the baptisms, you heard Cameron give testimony of how impactful it was just to even realize and to have the truth born into his heart that God wants a relationship with him. God wants a relationship. God desires and and God took extreme measures to have a relationship through covenant based on his faithfulness with men like David and with us in Christ. To be able to say, not just, oh God, you are God, but oh God, you are my God. And in this this tremendously hard time, David turns to his God. And he says to his God, to my God, he says, I shall seek you earnestly. Maybe some of your, your translations say, I'll seek you early or early in the morning. I'll seek you. I think that's how the old praise song goes. Um, I will seek you in the morning. That one. And the whole point is, first thing, you wake up. Another song. I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. Right? First thing out of the gate is I'm going I'm to seek the Lord. I'm going to pursue God. I'm going to pursue my God, the one who in his day had come to him and had said, David, I'm making a promise to you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you my king. I'm going to give you a throne. I'm going to give you uh, children. I'm going to have you have so one of your sons always will sit on the throne, and he promises the, the Savior through his line and And this covenant God is who he says, I shall seek you earnestly. In this dry and weary land, he says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Go back to that. And if if I put myself right there, considering all that's going on, if I put myself right there, I would be very, very tempted to say, and maybe you can join me in this, I would be very tempted to say, oh God, you are my God, and I really need some water. Oh God, you are my God, and I'm, I'm really hungry, and I don't know where I'm going to get food, and I really yearn for food. But this is why it's, it's evident here that, that David understands that God is his greatest need because his soul thirsts, his flesh yearns for you. David is aware, and, and it's, it, this comes out in the Hebrew where really it says, you, my soul thirsts for, you My flesh longs for. I'm stuck in that. I don't know where my drink is going to come from. My body is feeling weak, and yet I long for you, my God. And it's in this kind of a land where physical resources are scarce, and yet David's focus and his yearning is insightful for us. What fuels that, though? What what drives that for David? Well, I think it's in verse 2. Verse 2 has kind of some odd grammar, but I think it shows us why David knows God is his greatest need in this, because he's aware of God's character based upon his relationship, 
his past experience, and even the knowledge of what God is like and what he's doing right now. If you remember the, the passage that I read from 2 Kings, how Zadok wanted to bring the ark out, and he said, no, 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 take the ark back. If God is willing, I will go back to where God's ark is and where his holy habitation is. And so David, in verse 2, says, Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And thus, if, if you're like me, the word thus is a little bit confusing. The, the, the Hebrew particle there is, is used as a comparative, where the word thus makes me think conclusion, right? Da, 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 da. Thus, here's the conclusion, right? But I think he's saying thus, in, in thus a way, okay, to, to make the awkward English, all right? Just like his soul thirsts for you, his flesh yearns for you there. With that kind of an extreme need, with that kind of, a, of an extreme dependency, the urgency and need, it's like David is saying, the urgency and need that I'm communicating in this dry and weary land is the urgency and need I experience in worship. See, when David would gather for worship, when he would go to worship the Lord, he would have such a sense of, you are my God, and I long for you, and I thirst for you, because I've seen your power, and I've seen your glory, and I know who you are, and I know how you work, and I know what you've promised to me, and I know what you have said to me, and that drives my desire for you. And so just like that, in the midst of worship, David is saying, I long for you, God, because I'm, 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 I'm spatially, at least, removed from that point of worship that would have been so central to David's thinking as king of Israel at that time. Worship is where I knew your power. Worship is where I've beheld your glory. And so, in thus a way, I long for you because of that. And so that awareness and relationship is the fuel for this psalm. That awareness and relationship is what David, it helps David rightly know what his greatest need is, even in a time like this. And I think that's the first thing for us to consider, is what do we automatically consider to be our greatest need? And it's so easy, and I'm with, I'm with you and whatever you're thinking of right now, it's so easy to be caught in the onslaught of our, of our physical and our temporal needs. And I'm convicted when I think about David in the wilderness with his people and David saying, you know what my soul thirsts for and my flesh longs for is you, my God, to be in your presence, to be able to worship you in your holy habitation as I have known so intimately. That's my greatest desire. And I sit there and think, man, I am so petty. And when I encounter difficulty, I want relief from my difficulty. I want satisfaction of my, of my physical desires. But David shows us, helpfully what our greatest need is. The second lesson here is that God can always be your satisfaction. Look in verses 3 through 5. It says this, Because... Your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. 
and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. This loving kindness in verse 3 is, is, that, is that covenant love that is the bedrock anchor of David's relationship with God. God, who has revealed himself through his word to his people, has come to David and said, I make this covenant with you. I make this promise with you. This is the truth that I'm giving to you, that I'm saying to you, that I'm promising to you. And that is the anchor for David's relationship with God. And he says, because your loving kindness, your covenant love is better than life, my lips will praise you. And inherent in that, right, is the fact that David's life is on the line. He doesn't know. He said to Zadok, I hope the Lord willing, he will bring me back to be in his presence with the ark and his holy habitation. But inherent with that is his acknowledgement that that might not be the case. He might die in the wilderness. But he says, because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So God can always be your satisfaction. Who God is, what he has said, what he has promised, and how he will bear us through anything and everything unto the end that God has promised for us. That can, that can be our satisfaction in any in every circumstance. I mean, think about what Paul says. I've learned the secret of being content, of having plenty, of having little. I can do all things. This is the right context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. David, I can be in the wilderness wondering where I'm going to get a drink, wondering where my food's going to come from, and I can be satisfied in God because of God's character and because of my relationship with him, and it results in praise, even stuck in a desert. Talk about a non-circumstantial response, right? He doesn't say, God, get me out of the desert. Get me out of the wilderness and I'll praise you. No, he says, even while I'm in the desert, because of your loving kindness, I will praise you. David doesn't count on change, but he knows his God and he knows God's character. And so when we read then verse 4, so... Think again that likewise type of comparison. Just as that happened now in verse 4, likewise, because of God's loving kindness being better than life, I will bless you as long as I live. And uh, the word bless is kind of one of those Christian terms that, you know, you're like, okay, bless, bless. Is that the same as praise? Is that different? Oh, I just bless, you know, bless the Lord. We sing it, we say it. Blessing... Okay, God gives blessing to us. Those are the good things that come from his hands. Those are the, 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 the kindnesses and the favors and the undeserved goodness that he bestows on us, which we don't give to God, right? So when we are blessing God, we're not giving undeserved good things to God. But when we bless God or when God is said to be blessed by someone in the Bible, what it's saying is that specifically he's being praised and even just being attributed to have the character from which all goodness comes. Like James says, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow, right? So the acknowledgement, as we bless God, we say, God, you are the one from whom all good things come. It doesn't come from anybody else, and I can't turn to anyone else for any good thing because all good things come from you. And that's what happens when you are blessing God. So, 
in the wilderness, because of God's loving kindness, being better than life, David says, I will bless you as long as I live. I will call you the one from whom all good things come. As long as I live. That might be another week here in the wilderness. That might be another few years if you bring me out of the wilderness and back to Jerusalem. But as long as I live, wherever I am, in the satisfaction that God provides because of his character, David says, I will bless you. And then he says, I will lift up my hands in your name. What is this all about? We see it in the midst of musical worship sometimes, right? You see people raising their hands or you see people raising their hands or whatever the case may be. Um, we're going to take just a moment here and pull the car over. Maybe, maybe you've looked over and you've seen people raise their hands, or maybe you have raised your hands and you've looked over and seen people not raise their hands. And so since I'm the music guy, I'm just going to pull the car over. We're going to have a brief sidebar on this notion of what, what is it when he says, I will lift up my hands in your name. Okay, we see this notion of lifting hands in a number of places. I'm going to read you just lightning quick. Some references where we see this. Psalm 134 in entirety says this, Behold, bless the Lord. You know what that means now. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, who, he who made heaven and earth. In Psalm 28, 1-2, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit, those who die. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. In 1 Kings 8:54, when Solomon uh, consecrates the temple, it says this when he's finished. When Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. And 1 Timothy 2.8 says, Therefore, Paul says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now this is crucial. Okay? So this is coming from a, from a particular cultural context where this, this especially, okay, of, of, of holding out hands of, of supplication was a cultural expression. Paul's point here, I want the men to pray lifting up holy hands. This is, this is the crucial point, without wrath or dissension. That... that characteristic point is crucial for every single one of us to remember in the midst of kind of looking around and going, wait, am I supposed to be raising my hands like that? Or how come these people aren't necessarily raising their hands like me, right? One of the crucial points to remember, it is not the hand raising that matters, but the heart behind the hand raising or not. Isaiah 1.15 says, So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. So the hand raising in and of itself does nothing because God was rebuking them for their hypocrisy. He says, Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. So Bob Coffin agrees 
with this biblical warning, and he writes this in his book, Worship Matters. Physical expressiveness alone is no sure sign that biblical worship is happening. People have been exuberant in corporate worship while living in adultery. Some Christians exhibit little physical expression on Sundays, but have a profound love for the Savior, an exemplary life, and a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. A genuine response to God can't be measured by raised hands, dancing feet, and loud shouts. But Coughlin also rightly notes some Christians are simply unaware that physical responsiveness to God in worship is encouraged and modeled throughout Scripture. Okay, so we do see a lot of the times that in the holistic nature of our engagement in our worship of God, God wants our all. And just as we have physical responses to life, to the relationships with those people that are around us, to the events of things that happen in our lives, just as we have very physical responses to those things, we ought to have holistically involved responses to God. Dr. Daniel Block notes that the raising of hands is usually associated with prayer and supplication. See, empty hands. I, I need help. Provide. In a way that I can't. In a way that I am unable this is what the idea is. And certainly the bulk of examples of hand, lifting up of hands is in this context. We stand, we kneel, and in times of need, we should feel free to hold our hands out as an expression of our need for God's work. And look, if in times of song or prayer here at Mission Road, if you encounter a truth that stirs a physical response in you, I mean, this is not just the hand up. Right? Think about the way that you physically respond to life. When something good happens, what do you do? And the key is this is different for each one of us. Right? My son Silas, when something good happens, he literally starts screaming like a crazy person and jumping up and down and running around in circles. He is exuberance personified. Nicholas, my other son, when something good happens, he kind of goes... Right? That's, that's about as, as exuberant as he gets. So, whether in celebration, whether it's a fist pump or a clap or a smile, in times of need and supplication, whether your hands are, are out and open, whether they're just clenched, whether your head bows in recognition of your need and your contrition and your absolute dependence? I, I, I don't know, right? But we do see it. We do see physical expression, but as Andrew Hill notes as in his discussion of Old Testament expressions of worship, he says several different prayer, prayer postures are mentioned in the Old Testament, including standing, kneeling with the arms outstretched, kneeling, head bowed, prostrate, just flat out on your face on the ground, with uplifted hands, sitting and bowing with the face between the knees. And here's his note. While particular postures and gestures in prayer were optional, they were always conditioned by the mood, content, and circumstance of the prayer. All that to say in the midst of worship, in the midst of prayer, in the midst of song, in the midst of responding to the truth of God's word here at Mission Road, 
understand that we see physical responsiveness described and that appropriate physical responsiveness is a good thing, but that it never is the measure of someone's relationship with the Lord and that there's a spectrum of those responsive expressions, all right? And in this context specifically, when David says, I will bless you, okay, I will, I will attribute to you the source of all good, and then he says, I will lift up my hands in your name, David is holding out his hands in God's name, giving voice to his need. And what happens? Look at the next verse. Again, remember, most of these contexts is saying, I, I need, I'm dependent, I cannot, and so I come to you, God. And in verse 5, he says, my soul is satisfied. My soul is satisfied. How? I appreciate this right here. As with marrow and fatness. If you've ever enjoyed a good steak, this is it. Except it's not physical. In the midst of a dry and weary land, David holds out his hands to his God, says, God, you are my God. My soul thirsts for you. My, my flesh yearns for you. Satisfy me. And God does. And God does. And this is why we can understand that God can always be our satisfaction. We do not find ourselves, brothers and sisters, in any context where God cannot be our satisfaction. And you and I will fail. And we will be discontent and we will be dissatisfied and we will look for satisfaction in other things. And we need to repent of that. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of who God is, what He has done, how we, who we are in Him and find and seek and yearn for God such that our satisfaction comes from Him regardless of the circumstance. I love what Spurgeon said. There was no desert in David's heart, even though there was a desert all around him. Don't you want to be that way? Did you know that you can be that way? That you don't have to be driven by your circumstances? You can be satisfied. And even in the midst of hard times, in that satisfaction, your mouth can offer praises with joyful lips. But we have to remember how David started the psalm. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. And that is the foundation from which we see all of this. The third truth here is that God is praiseworthy at all times. For, for, for me, verse 6 was one of the most helpful and convicting verses as I was considering this psalm. I mean, um, again, I think it's a pretty universal experience to have sleepless nights. All right, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I would wager most hands would go up if you've had a sleepless night for a variety of reasons. Maybe you're worried about something. Maybe you're nervous about something. Maybe you just had too much coffee later in the evening and you can't get to sleep. What do you do? What do you do in those times? I'll tell you what I have tended to do 
if it's the caffeine thing, I tend, to, I tend to get very upset at myself for having had caffeine for too late and just say, Aaron, you know that that happens. Why did you do that again? My wife and I went out on a date last night and we shared, I asked for a decaf latte. And after we finished it and we were heading home, I said, and this is about the time where I start to panic and think maybe they didn't give us a decaf latte. But they did. I got to sleep well. <laughs> However, there are times where that doesn't happen. And there are times where something has happened to cause turmoil in my heart and I can't sleep. Something has happened or is going to happen that I, that I, I am concerned about, maybe even anxious about, and it's on my mind and it's on my heart and my mind is going and my emotions are stirring and I can't get to sleep. And what do you do? I get frustrated. Maybe even just like, you know, you ever get stuck in those cycles of, well, this could happen. Well, I hope this, maybe if I do this, then that won't happen. But if I do that, then this might happen. Well, then that might happen. And then and you just kind of get stuck in this vortex of trying to solve all your problems while you're laying there in bed. And the problems haven't even happened yet. And you know you think this, okay? All of those types of things. So look at what David says. Verse 6, when I remember you on my bed... I meditate on you in the night watches. This is so instructive for how we should profitably handle our nights of sleeplessness. And I know some of you have physical conditions that keep you up at night. Some of you have learned this. Some of you are probably still struggling with this, this, this pain, this difficulty. We can redeem those times. Remember, intentionally call to mind Okay, you're, you're, you're anxious about what's to come, you're uncomfortable, you're in pain. Well, in that moment, intentionally remember God on your bed. And then I meditate on you in the night watches. You hear that night watches? Watch one, watch two, watch three. It's progressive, right? This is not just David has 90 minutes of sleeplessness and he meditates and then... It's like counting sheep, except you meditate on God and you go to sleep. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the night watches are progressing, and I'm meditating on who God is. And meditating is this idea of even just muttering. All right? So to meditate, you have to have, to have truth in your heart and in your mind. And then as you call those things to mind on your bed, you mutter over them. Okay, I'm in this pain, but I know that this is true about God, and I'm worried about this thing coming up tomorrow, but I'm not going to dwell on the worriedness of that because I know who my God is. These are some scripture verses that tell me what he has promised, and so as I anticipate this event in my life, I can rest on the fact that God has said this. I have seen God's faithfulness back. You see how that works? Instead of, as I'm tempted to do all the time, instead of just getting frustrated or stuck in that vortex, you intentionally call those things to mind, meditate, mutter on them, and remember that God is praiseworthy at all times, even in the sleepless late watches of the night. In this dry and weary land, David shelters under the shadow of his wings. It's a poetic description, right, of Babies sheltering under the, the protective and the strong wing of a, of a mother bird. His soul clings to God. It's the same word used, used in marriage, 
You know, that they shall cling, you know, you, you leave father and mother and cling, cleave to one another. David's soul cleaves, clings to God. It's, it's interesting, the Hebrew almost has this, almost like if you were to translate it super literally, it'd be like this, my soul clings to your hind parts, which is odd. But then I was thinking about it. He's talking about, you know, sheltering under your wings and one of my favorite things is I, just, I love interacting with the kids of this church, and I don't know if I'm just scary. I've been told I'm very intense, and so maybe they pick up on that or something, but sometimes I'll, I'll come up to one of the kids, and maybe I've even, <laughs> I can think of a few kids I've known for their whole life, and they still do this. I'll be, hey, and I won't say their name, but I say, hey, how is he doing? And you know what they do? They run behind mom and dad, and they grab onto their pants legs. And maybe they do or maybe they don't peek their head around, but they are clinging to the backside of their parent. And I, th I think that's the point here. David's saying, I'm hiding here because this is safe. No matter what comes, this is safe. Why? Because your right hand upholds me. In biblical terminology, the right hand is the hand of power. The right hand is the hand of capability. The right hand is the one that provides deliverance. And so David says, even here in the wilderness, I know you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, in that protective place, I sing for joy. Because of who you are, my soul clings to you in those night watches. And as I mutter on you, on who you are and what you've done in, the, in, in those sleepless nights, your right hand upholds me. Folks, if you're at all normal, you're like, what is he going to say? It's really easy to be tempted to pull away from God and to pull away from the church when things get hard, right? To think, well, I, I'm not good enough or I gotta get this dialed in before I can go back to the Lord or before I can go back to church or I just need to like, I just need to kind of push things away and figure this out. But God is praiseworthy at all times. And uh, one of my favorite passages in Hebrews where God, God says that we have a, a sympathetic high priest who, who, is, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But he invites us to come near to the throne of grace to find help in time of need. God is praiseworthy and we can come to him at all times. And in this moment, in this wilderness, David presses in, he clings, he relies, and he contemplates and he sings praises as a result. And this is so instructive for us in our hardships, in our allegorical wildernesses, okay? That no hardship needs to take away our joy. No hardship needs to take away our song of praise. No hardship needs to take away our contentment. Again, think of Paul and his example of that. But our response to those times must be grounded like David's was in knowing you are my God and earnestly I seek you. The last truth is this, is that God is just in judgment. We see this in verse 9. He says, but those who seek my life to destroy it will go down into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. 
In Hebrew poetry, David is just driving the point home almost to excess here. Judgment, death, eaten by carrion animals, killed by the sword. David's saying, I, I know who's in control of their fate. God will judge evil. God will judge the wrongdoer. And David rests in that because God is just in judgment. But the king, David, will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory or, or praise. It's the same word as up in verse 5 where it says, uh, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Everyone who swears by him will praise. There will be guaranteed for the child of God rejoicing and praising through and after hard and difficult times, wildernesses, especially if we approach it in this manner of, oh God, you are my God and I shall seek you earnestly. Everyone who swears by him will glory, will praise, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. This is also easy for us to forget. We think things are out of our control. We think, we think maybe God is unaware of the injustice that's being wrought upon me. Maybe we think that God is unaware of the evil that is happening in the world around us or in our immediate vicinity. But David calls to mind God's covenant love, and he knows how the end will shake out. It's very, this is all very reminiscent, right, of, of Pastor Rick's kind of ongoing lesson. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? David felt thirst. He felt persecution. He felt hunger. He felt abandonment. He felt betrayal. What did he think? I think he probably called to mind God's faithfulness in his past and God's promises. And so what did he know? He knew who God was. He knew what God had said he would do. He knew what the end would turn out to be like. And it changed his response. That dictated his response in the midst of the wilderness. And so always remember, God is your greatest need. Preach to yourself. Preach to one another. Hey, I know this is hard. I know you're being tempted to take your eyes off of the Lord and put it entirely upon this circumstance or this pain or this hardship or this betrayal or this loss. But God is your greatest need. Remind each other that God can always be your satisfaction. You, you never need to find yourself in a situation where you say God is not enough. The fault in those situations lies with us, not with God. Remember, God is praiseworthy at all times, and this is so, this is so helpful. I mean, this is one of the reasons I think in the New Testament we read so many, uh, so many times where Paul says, look, give thanks in all circumstances. Boy, does that have a heart-reorienting type of effect on me. I'm sure it does on you too. And then remember that God is just in judgment. You can leave that to him. James Montgomery Boyce said of this psalm, given these circumstances, the psalm is an amazing triumph of faith. But as G. Campbell Morgan writes, two things are necessary for such triumph as this. These are indicated in the opening words of the psalm. First, there must be the consciousness of personal relationship. O oh God, thou art my God. 
And that's only possible through Jesus Christ. Not your own doing, not your own knowledge, but through repenting of your faith and placing your faith, repenting of your sins and placing your faith in the person of Jesus, which then inextricably connects you to God as his son or daughter. So first, there must be the consciousness of personal relationship. Oh God, thou art my God. And secondly, there must be an earnest seeking after God. We can just admit it if we phone it in sometimes. But we should also expect the results of phoning it in. Earnestly, early, vigilantly, ongoingly, I will seek you. Because that is true. A wise person will desire both. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for taking David through that hard time. Thank you for bringing him to the edge of losing everything so that we can be instructed in what it means to go through that and how to respond in a way that honors you, that extols you, that makes much of you. Give us your grace. Lord, in our own hearts, to speak truth to ourselves, to, in our relationships with one another, to be able to encourage and to bear up and to speak truth with one another in a way that helps us endure whatever hardship might be in our lives in a way that honors you such as this. You are faithful. Your love is unlike anything else. We know what our future holds. So teach us more every day of the greatness of who you are and how to walk with you. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.